Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here and also a proud member. Today's June 4th here with a virtual City Club Forum. Yesterday, Cleveland City Council passed a new piece of legislation declaring racism a public health crisis. Coming on the heels of the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, the legislation means that the city formally recognizes racism as a crisis that damages public health through discrimination. Cleveland follows the cities of Madison and Milwaukee, as well as Franklin County here in Ohio, and others in declaring racism a public health crisis. What this does is it triggers a process mandated by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that systems be put in place to remediate the health crisis. So today we'll talk with one of the authors of the legislation here in Cleveland about what this means in concrete terms. Before I introduce our speaker, I wanna thank our generous members, sponsors, and donors who support these virtual forums. For a full list, you can visit us at cityclub.org slash thank you, and you can join them in supporting our work by making a contribution or becoming a member there, right there at cityclub.org. Now to our speaker, Councilman Blaine Griffin represents Ward 6 in the city of Cleveland. That encompasses east side neighborhoods of Fairfax, Larchmere, Little Italy, Woodland Hills, and parts of Buckeye Shaker, University Circle, North Broadway, Slavic Village, and Union Miles. He's chairman of the Council's Health and Human Services Committee, which is the committee that generated this legislation, and he sits on four other committees as well. Prior to serving on Council, Councilman Griffin served as executive director of the city's Community Relations Board, a position he held for 11 years. That board works to improve cross-cultural relations throughout the city and oversees police and community relations as well, and as well as youth initiatives. Now, as in every city club forum, you can participate with your questions on this topic and really any others in the councilman's wheelhouse. Text those questions to 330-541-5794. That number is 330-541-5794. You can see it on the screen. And you can also tweet your questions at the city club if you're a Twitter kind of person. We will work those questions in. Councilman Griffin, welcome back to the city club. It's great to see you. Good to see you as well, Dan. Councilman, um, yesterday was a really significant day. Um, you've been working on this legislation uh, for a long time. And... Um, I, I talked to you yesterday to ask you, like, did you take a moment and uh, and sort of feel a sense of pride about it? And you said, no, there's no time. There's no time. I mean, we have too much of a sense of urgency right now. And uh, first of all, Dan, thank you for allowing me to be on the Citadel of Free Speech with uh, the City Club. But you're right, is uh, no time is a sense of urgency. Uh, there's too much work to do to sit down and try to pat each other on the back because this resolution is going to have to become more than words. It's going to have to be entrenched in the, uh, in the soul of the city of Cleveland. Tell us about the um, about what the resolution actually means. I mean, to on its face, the many would worry that this is just a set of words, um, and we have lots of declarations. Council produces all sorts of declarations all the time to to pat somebody on the back for one thing or another. But what, why is this more than just a set of words? Well, for a few reasons. Um, you know, I often say one of my favorite movies is The Usual Suspects. And I never forget when Kaiser Soze said the best trick that the ever the devil ever performed was to convince mankind that it didn't exist. So the first thing is just to actually acknowledge that racism does exist and that it has caused irreparable harm. Uh, to a person, which in this case has been African-Americans and people of color, um, just like our Latinx uh, brothers and sisters as well. Uh, so what, you know, this is, is a first step, 
like anything, you have to have a first step. And looking at it from a public health lens, looking at it from a, a Centers for Disease Control, uh, public health is the science of protecting and improving the health of people, entire populations and communities. So um, looking at this from a comprehensive holistic standpoint, as opposed to just uh, trying to fix one of the symptoms. Can you take a step back for us and explain the, I mean, this is happening in many places around the country. And I think for leaders like yourself and others who are familiar with the dialogue around it, it's very straightforward. Racism causes these public health problems. But for people who may be tuning in right now who don't see the connection, who don't understand racism as a public health threat, why is it? Well, when you talk about 400 years of slavery, uh, brought over here, the psychology of that and uh, the remnants of that still exist today. Uh, the thought process, the race and social construct that that system of oppression, um, you know, did um, is it, still the effects are still there. When you talk about Jim Crow laws and then people migrated from the South to escape Jim Crow and came to the North and then it became redlining. And in all of those areas and all of those, uh, you know, constructs that I just mentioned, uh, irreparable harm has been done to the people who are still existing in those areas. If you look at the epidemiology of all of the uh, Cleveland's neighborhoods, you'll see that those areas that were redlined have the most health problems, uh, the most uh, crime, the highest level of poverty, the lowest level of educational attainment. And a lot of that is because of the social constructs that racism has caused. You know, we should um, point out the City Club forums that have addressed those issues, specifically around redlining and the the ways in which uh, historic redlining has had these impacts moving forward with regard to uh, health outcomes, as you mentioned, but also um, crime, crime, you know, police enforcement kinds of like disproportionate uh, police enforcement kinds of outcomes, as well as poor economic outcomes, increase in poverty and all of that. Um, there was a forum by Richard Rothstein, who wrote the book, The Color of Law, Jason Reese, who used to run the Kerwin Institute at Ohio State University, that's done a considerable amount of research that I know informed the legislation. Uh, Councilman Griffin, what happens next? Now that the this is a piece of legislation that's produced by this by city council, signed by the mayor, what does that mean? What is the what are the concrete steps that are about to take place? Well, you know, it's good that you mentioned that because, like I said, this can't be a document that just lives on paper and uh, collects dust on the shelves. Everybody agrees uh, that that's what it cannot be. Um, I would tell you that anything that I've been successful at, anything that I've seen be successful in the city of Cleveland, has been from building an internal, external partnership and collaboration. And that's what happened in forming this legislation. I didn't just do it in a vacuum, uh, along with my colleagues, uh, Bashir Jones and Carrie McCormick and the others on council that supported it. Uh, I had the Urban League, I had the NAACP, I had YWCA, uh, I had, uh, you know, First Year Cleveland. Um, you know, I had, um, you know, several different groups that really sat there and helped us craft the language by looking at best practices so that it could be an internal and external document. And then I was happy to see yesterday that organizations like the Cleveland Clinic, University Hospitals, and uh, the Greater Cleveland Partnership and others also signed on in support just from an external standpoint. And we're getting several other uh, requests to say, hey, we support this. We want to be at the table to do this. So what does it mean, though? What will be the next things, the, the, the acts, the actions that come out of this that people will see? 
We'll be looking at the structures that are provided by an organization called GARE, uh, the uh, Government Alliance on Race and Equity. Uh, we're going to look at our subject matter experts in our own backyard. Um, I, I think that the work that uh, my sister Evelyn Barnett and uh, Mordecai, um, you know, had been doing, they need to be at the table having this conversation. They help rewrite that. So we're going to look at how we put the best minds to the table. I tell people this oftentimes that council people are asked to know a little bit about everything, but not be experts in one thing. And it's a lot of people that understand what really need to be done in order to resolve this issue of racism in our society. And we're going to bring all those partners to the table, um, especially the legacy civil rights organizations that I mentioned earlier. You mentioned uh, the Third Space Action Lab, Evelyn Burnett, Mordecai Cargill, and their colleagues there. I should mention that Mordecai is going to be on our forum tomorrow, along with Danielle Sidnor of the uh, NAACP, um, to discuss kind of and discuss the way forward and what's happening now and um, everything that's everything that's been happening over the last two weeks with respect to the <clears throat> the killing of George Floyd by police and uh, and other needed, you know other related issues. So two very bright people, but I have to also give shout out to Marsha Maccabee and uh, Margaret. Oh, yeah. James, they, they're smart too. They got it too. <laughs> oh, they do indeed. And I'm just mentioning that they have that, that Mordecai is going to be on the, on the program tomorrow, on the forum tomorrow. Awesome. He's one of our awesome. speakers, uh, along with Danielle Sidnor of uh, NAACP. The, the legislation is obviously connected to a number of areas. From my point of view, it seems like it's deeply connected to the work that you and others um, and the city has been doing around lead poisoning. It's related to uh, work around infant mortality. It's related to the immediate public health work around the disproportionate impacts COVID-19. And it's also related to, um, to police reform and the disproportionate impact that police violence has on the black community. Um, I kind of want you to talk about all four of those things and whatever else, wherever else you see this as having a, a, an impact as well. Well, I think this 133rd Council has done a lot to really try to move social justice forward. And in addition to those that you uh, that you mentioned, um, when you talk about, uh, you know, trying to deal with lead poisoning in our city, which has been a pervasive problem for a long time. Uh, these are social justice issues. When you talk about uh, reform and the fact of decriminalization of marijuana, which we passed, um, which I introduced. These are things that um, are social justice issues, things where we're trying to really uh, re address systems and make systemic change uh, because they have a residual effect. So you're right. Um, this is not just about law reform and police reform. Um, I know that a lot of people said, hey, you know, that's what this needs to be about. Well, we have one of the most um, constructive uh, police reform documents that we're implementing right now. And what a lot of people are not talking about with the exception or the one tragedy that we're really trying to understand now with Desmond Franklin, um, shootings and police involved incidents have gone down significantly in the city of Cleveland. And that's due to not just the police and the city officials, but to the community that stepped up to the table and said, this is how we want to be police. So we do have a very strong document. We might need to tweak it and we have to get better. And we could always look at trying to do better 21st century policing. Um, I think we have to look at, uh, you know, some of the, um, you know, rules in the, uh, in the, in the uh, union contract and other things. But I think we, I think we're in good shape right now. 
the um, the document that you refer to is the consent decree that was implemented following the police killings of uh, Melissa Williams and Timothy Russell, as well as the police killing of Tamir Rice. Um, is that right? That's what you're referring to, the consent decree? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, that, the, the Department of Justice has kind of pulled back on some of the pressure. I mean, they had been pushing forward, pushing very hard on the, on the consent decree's implementation. And then under the Trump administration, it feels as though there's been an explicit uh, call to just kind of slow walk some of the, from the Department of Justice to, to not press for some of the reforms that were called for. Am, am I misunderstanding that? Or is that how- No, you're right. I mean, you're right. I mean, for example, they just uh, gave a, um, a grant called Operation Relentless Pursuit. And it was built all around law enforcement. Well, under the Obama administration, when uh, the Obama administration would administer funds, it was more to focus on a holistic approach, which was um, prevention, reentry, and law enforcement. Um, so um, even the grants that are coming from the federal government have changed um, significantly. However, um, the last I've looked, the city of Cleveland has been meeting most of the benchmarks that were set by the monitor uh, that we put together. I take pride in it because I helped uh, develop the consent decree. I actually sat at the table uh, as, a, as a partner with the city uh, to actually develop the language to make sure that the community's input was uh, put into that document. That's why I take pride in it. The, um, you also mentioned, I just wanna circle back to uh, the name Desmond Franklin. No, it's that case is not well known. Um, partly, I, I suppose, because the our media is in such turmoil right now, and not able to cover stories in the same way that they used to be able to. But for those who don't know, can you describe what happened in that case? Well, I don't know all of the facts in the case. Uh, it's my understanding that an off-duty police officer uh, was involved in a police-involved shooting, and that the information that was given at the scene. Um, did not match, and we're in the process of really trying to understand as a Cleveland City Council. Um, so that's something that, you know, we always allow the investigation to take place, um, but that's something we're waiting to hear more answers on. One of the things that I try really hard not to do is uh, give misinformation on cases like that, because uh, once misinformation goes out there, then, um, you know, it's hard to put it back. Okay. You mentioned decriminalization of marijuana. Is that something the city council is currently considering? Uh, we actually already passed it. Um, we actually passed that earlier this year. Uh, we actually um, introduced it and passed it. And uh, it's law in the city of Cleveland up to seven ounces. Uh, we had uh, it passed 15 to two. We had two council members that had some reservations about the amounts. Uh, but the council overwhelmingly uh, supported that. That's why I say a lot of times people don't know the social justice issues uh, that council has taken up to really try to address some of these systemic issues. So do you feel that that law has been implemented appropriately by the division of police? Uh, we're still waiting on statistics. Right now, I do believe it is. And some people are telling me uh, that it is. Other people are telling me that it isn't. And at the end of the year, we're going to look at the data. Um, as my good friend Councilman Conwell says, we're going to look at the metrics. We're going to look at the, uh, the evaluation. So um, I want to come back. I'm sure we'll come back to some criminal justice reform issues that are deeply connected to the public health crisis of racism. Um, but I want to speak, have you speak a little bit more about some things that are more kind of 
generally recognized or uh, connected to health, lead poisoning, infant mortality to, to start, as well as maternal mortality. Um, can you, uh, in what ways will the city's efforts to remediate lead poisoning and, um, and to deal with infant mortality, in what way will, will those efforts be different now that we've declared racism as a public health crisis? Well, see, that's the thing. It's not always that you have to do everything different. Sometimes you have to coordinate and tie everything all together because of the, you know, because, you know, the one thing, the one stream that runs through all of the issues that you just mentioned with criminal justice reform, housing, um, health disparities and all the other issues that we have in our community, um, economics, which is which we know is very critical to all of this, is uh, racism. Uh, the racial constructs that have been put in place in this system have been, uh, you know, uh, barriers to people being able to fully participate and have um, healthy lives like they need to. So what's different is how do we put something in place that people can touch, see, feel and really understand that their life is being uh, made different. And we're gonna have to do that through looking at policies. Some people sent me some things uh, regarding platforms around um, immunity for police officers. You know, is that something that we might need to uh, have to take a real deep look at, even though it has to come from the federal government, well then maybe we need to have advocacy at the local level. So th there's several different things that we might have to look at when we, um, you know, we're looking at these issues. Does this does the public health crisis unlock additional resources from the state or the federal government to allow you to address some of these issues? It may. Um, that's why I said we're going to rely on the uh, GAIR document, the Government Alliance on Race and Equity, and we're going to look at some of these other cities and how their models are in place. Because I would tell you that everybody from uh, the street club president to the president of big organizations have said, Blaine, how can I sign up? I want to be a part of this. And uh, we're going to have to really structure this in a way so that everybody can participate, but that we also come out of it with some concrete steps. And um, that's why it might need to have funding. And, uh, you know, that's something we'll look at at the right time. Or we might just need to realign uh, some of the resources that we have currently available and just have them dedicated more towards some of these things. But the mayor did say uh, in his state of the city speech that equity is the center of how we address all of these issues moving forward. So I know that uh, between him and this council, we definitely want to look at where we need to make investments towards equity. So where does where does responsibility for implementation fall inside of City Hall? If it's a public health crisis, does it then fall to the director of public health? Or is there because this is so much broader, perhaps, and cuts across so many parts of the city's work? Is there some other way in which you establish a, um, you know, a, a, an anti-racism czar or something like that inside of City Hall? I mean, what's the we mentioned earlier that um, other cities, Milwaukee, Madison, have both uh, implemented legis similar legislation. How do we deal with this? How do we make sure that it, that somebody is responsible? Well, if it was my dream, I would like to have a chief equity officer that actually is a person that does nothing but stays fo the state's focus on making sure that we have diversity in everything we do in city operations and across the uh, across the board. And I think that there's departments in the city of Cleveland right now that can be redesigned, realigned and put together uh, to to actually accomplish that. Or we might need to, you know, do something different, maybe add a couple of other people. 
people. Um, I will also tell you that uh, the Chief of Public Affairs, Natoya Walker, at this time is going to lead the charge. And uh, she's a very capable person. And uh, she's been working in this space for a long time. Uh, she goes back to working with it when Seattle started this about 15 years ago. Uh, so uh, I think it needs to be somebody from the mayor's office that really has the uh, uh, opportunity to talk and work with closely with the mayor. But then I also think it's somebody that has a good understanding of all of the departments. So, you, you know, you're going to have to do some um, investments in order to make that happen. Councilman Griffin, um, you also sit on the uh, Development Planning and Sustainability Committee of uh, Cleveland City Council. And um, these issues around race and equity often get played out there in terms of how communities are developed, how resident voices are included in those development decisions and those planning decisions and um, and around sustainability as well, which often you know goes goes hand in hand with things like access to green space and so forth. Um, can you talk about how you see this uh, this new um, push kind of finding its way through the work of that committee? Well, the city has already, through the Department of City Planning and Director Freddie Collier, really been working on place matters and through the uh, Vision 2020 plan in the city of Cleveland, um, we've you know, had several of those kind of place matters and implemented health equity and race equity in our in our process. So some things have already been done is how do you, you know, step them up more. Um, that's one of the reasons why there's been a big push to invest in the Thrive 105-93 corridor. Um, that's the corridor on the east side of Cleveland that goes from Garfield Heights and East 93rd all the way to Quincy goes down Quincy and then from 105 all the way out to the Bratnall border and in the center that you have Cleveland uh, Clinic, which is the, the city's largest employer. But those areas have been disinvested and neglected for a long time. So working on the DPS committee and working closely with city planning, um, we're already trying to put plans and, and strategies on how we can invest in some of those distressed communities that have um, experienced disinvestment. And in Glenville's case, it's still recovering from uh, some of the riotous activities that happened 50 and 60 years ago. Mm -hmm. Councilman, with a lot of public health issues, um, there are very clear metrics. We're dealing with a massive pandemic right now, and we know that the metrics uh, that we're concerned with have to do with the number of deaths, the number of identified cases, the number of tests being administered, the number of hospitalizations and ICU admits and so forth. With lead poisoning, you can count the number of houses that have been where remediation has happened. And you can count, you can, you can figure out the incidence of lead poisoning among children who are being tested. How will we measure progress in dealing with the crisis of the public health crisis of racism? Well, first of all, you know, it's a pandemic and we'll have to create a baseline and show sort of where we are now and then where we want to be. What, you know, what kind of equity and what, what does real equity mean? Um, we were able to do some of that with the community benefits agreement that was uh, orchestrated by Mayor Jackson and the uh, trade unions uh, a few years ago, where you actually can, um, you know, get some of the private and corporate entities to adopt some of the city's policies so that you could have more people that have economic inclusion. Um, so what we have to do is be able to, uh, you know, measure where we really want to be. Uh, what is, uh, how do we have, instead of having, you know, more subcontractors, do we have more prime? 
contractors that are getting projects in the city of Cleveland? How are we creating more wealth? Are we going to look at right now? I think that the uh, income, average income is about 24000 or so for a uh, family in the city of Cleveland. Is it, you know, do we want to try, what is the goal that we want to try to have the average income in order to help it grow? Uh, all of those things can be measured. And like I said, there's other cities that have documents that can help us capture that data. And we'll look at best practices. It's exciting to imagine a new kind of dashboard through which we might measure our progress that would be more than just um you know the kind of standard things that we see about like you know whatever hundreds of millions of dollars invested in real estate development throughout the city or um or you know the standard sort of you know employment figures which don't really take into account whether or not people are working for a living wage or not um that's a it's a big conversation what role do you see for residents in building that dashboard it's not going to work unless uh, unless it has residents. And just before I, you know, just mention that again about the residents, you know, this this whole thing, for example, in Milwaukee, this helps disaggregate data. It helps you disaggregate data, data faster. In Milwaukee, uh, in those areas that have this document, they was able they were able to collect the data faster to say, wait a minute, we have a problem with African Americans being affected with COVID nineteen. Therefore, they were able to redirect their resources their messaging and other things in order to address it in a quicker and faster manner. Um, you get accreditation through this process that actually, you know, can say this, this group is actually performing the standards that we believe in. And once again, it touches all areas. So we'll have to measure housing, uh, measure uh, jobs, employment, uh, health disparities, all of those different things. Now you asked about the neighbors and how can they be involved? And let me say this to you. Um, a lot of times we do these type of efforts and we make them academic exercises where the people that live on East 93rd or the people that live on Buckeye or the people that live on Quincy and the area that I represent um, don't don't get heard in the process. Um, you know, you, you got to just be able to. Um, lead and it's my job to lead and my job is to really try to make sure that their voice is heard through this process through some way in the structure uh, because we can't do this without people in the community really buying into this they really have to make sure that they feel like their voice is heard you know i'm going to uh, transition to uh questions from the audience because there's one that came in earlier that is um related to what we've just been discussing. If you have a question for Councilman Griffin, you can tweet it at City Club or text it to the number on the screen there, 330-541-5794. That's a Google Voice number we set up just to receive text messages during forums. So text your question and we'll um, we'll get it. But um, Councilman Griffin, uh, what about public comment during council meetings? The, because you guys are all meeting virtually right now, there's been, that's all been shifted. And I've heard from others who are, you know, you hear the talk on Twitter and, and so forth from people who are um, who are disappointed that they don't have a voice right now or they don't have they don't know how to have a voice. What about public comment during council meetings? Well, I mean, I would tell you that, you know, the, the first thing that I will say to you is that I think that there is a way for people to have a voice to work closely with their council person. I think that there is a way to have your voice heard. Um, if it were me, if it were me, now I can't speak for everybody else. If it were me, I would um, rather speak at the committees because the committees is where the, uh, as 
the old political statement says, where the sausage is made, is where the policy is really debated at the committee table. Um, I, I also, I would think that if I could, I would have more, uh, you know, remote health committees to where people could actually come to a health committee that I might have remotely in the community where people can actually uh, come and see um, what we're doing on the health committee and also give uh, any input. I, um, I, I, I just have a thing about, you know, when a loud minority sometimes controls the, the, you know, the platform. When we had the consent decree, there was a small group of people that went to every meeting and they were the only ones that spoke. So therefore a lot of the neighborhood people um, got shut out. So if it was a way for a fair process so that it could be equitable on how people had a voice, I would be for something like that. But I don't see just lining people up and just having everybody make comments is how it's going to uh, affect a lot. But um, I would be open to it if um, if that's what people wanted. I wouldn't be angry at all. Well, most council members that I know well uh, spend an awful lot of time on the phone with their constituents, whether through text messages or phone calls or emails. Um, and I'm sure your life, I know, I mean, you and I know one another pretty well. I know your life is not any different than that. That's, you know, if, if you and I weren't talking right now, you'd probably be taking constituent calls, um, which is another Absolutely. way you can sort of offer comment. It may not be official public comment on the record, but um, anyway, I got lots of thoughts about public comment and how you can do that, Blaine. You and I can speak about that offline. Um, sure. This question was the first question we received. How by legal definition can racism be a public health crisis? What legal statute applies here? Um, I mean, I'm I'm not an attorney, so I'm not going to try to sit here and act like I have an, a legal opinion for you. I would just tell you that we work closely with our attorneys when we did this and the other cities that we looked at uh, to see if it could withstand um, a legal status, and, and it can. And then also a resolution is pretty much a declarative statement. Um, so we still represent one of the most powerful institutions in the city of Cleveland, which is City Hall. So the fact that coming from a, uh, uh, an elected group of people who represent City Hall, that is making a statement uh, for an institution that is owed as City Hall, and also take the leadership role because now others across the city are starting to make that same statement, I think is huge. So um, I'm not so much caught up in what the legal definition of what this means is, as much as it is the symbolic right now. And then the legal will come once we make the recommendations on specific ordinances and policies that we have that come out of this, once we put all of the working group and all of the people together. And I, I would just say that if any of your colleagues at City Hall um, uh, from the law department or the media communications to, uh, for city council are listening, if they could help us out with some links to the applicable statutes on Twitter. That would be helpful and we'll certainly share them around. Um, it's a very direct question about the working group created by the resolution. Um, what relationship and inv or involvement will that working group have with the community police, the Cleveland Community Police Commission and their work to address the systemic racism and bias within the Cleveland Division of Police? Oh, well, definitely they'll probably, you know, have a relationship with anybody working in that space um, of, of equity and inclusion. So, um, you know, that's something that I think that nobody will be able to dance over. And like I said, that people would do it. We're not trying to create another system of oversight. 
Uh, what we're trying to do is create a system of innovation of how can we start thinking differently about um, equity and race in our community, um, not to try to find more oversight of what's already in place. Um, I think that that commission is already um, you know, operating and functioning great. And then they give us updates and then we'll work closely with their work and just take their recommendations. We don't need to recreate uh, what they already are doing. Does that mean that the working group would function more as a um, as a resource to the to the division of police and to the police commission rather than a, another, as you say, layer of oversight? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that goes for not just the police commission. There's a lot of people doing great work in this space. And sometimes, like I said, it's about coordinating and bringing the connectivity together so that we could have a better impact and so that we can actually make sure that we that is measurable, that we actually have measurable data to show how people's lives are doing better. Councilman, uh, continuing on um, issues around police reform and uh, the police, the division of police generally, this from one of your constituents, I've been disappointed in some of the councilman's actions, such as promoting the use of gunshot detection technology and even drones. Councilman, what will you do to reduce the increasing militarization of the police and instead divert much needed funding to actually help people in our communities? Um, let me say this to you. I have certain areas of this city and certain areas of the ward that I represent that um, people don't even call in gunshots. And the reason that they don't call in gunshots because in some cases they don't feel like they're going to get a police response. And in some cases they feel like, um, you know, it's just become the norm. And um, sometimes technology like that helps us to be able to, um, you know, police our communities in an equitable way. They're still going to have to follow all of the policies, all of the uh, things that they uh, that we have in the consent decree and all of the training that they have. Uh, but I have areas in this city that, um, you know, people are frustrated and they're frustrated because of, you know, the I'm fired at they hear and those other kind of things. So I have to be concerned about them too. Um, I have to be concerned about them saying every day we have to do something about these shootings and this crime and these robberies in our neighborhood. So, um, you know, I'm not for the militarization of a police department, uh, but I am for using technology and other tools in order to accomplish our mission to stop crime. The um, if the Cleveland Division of Police, I'm reading another question here, if the Cleveland Division of Police or the Cleveland Police Patrolmen's Association supported the resolution that racism is a public health crisis, it would go a long way that those organizations are also committed to local institutional change. As a primary bill sponsor, were those two organizations asked to support the resolution? And if so, what did they say? And if they were not asked, why not? Not yet. Um, you know, I would welcome it from Mr. Fomer or anybody in his organization. Um, I actually happen to have a great relationship with Mr. Fomer. Um, and I will tell you that we would welcome that. And I agree with that person that it would go a long way if the Cleveland Police Union did uh, support this resolution. I will tell you that it made me proud uh, to hear the Black Shield Union, as well as uh, retired officers like Marvin Cross, and also some retired commanders and police officers when that horrible issue happened with uh, you know, the killing of Mr. Floyd in Minnesota, it was great to see those law enforcement folks uh, speak out. It, meant, it went volumes, it meant volumes. So I think it does go a long way if we get that kind of support. 
You know, related to this, another question uh, that uh, points out that the contract between the city and the Cleveland Police Patrolmen's Association has not been is is still kind of not uh, not current. It hasn't been approved. They haven't approved a new contract since March 2019, according to this listener. Would you support language a language provision in the new contract that there's a mutual recognition that racism is a public health crisis? Yeah, that's. I would love to see something like that. To be honest with you, yes. Why would I argue that? <laughs> that would be um, that would be pretty extraordinary if that language was worked into the contract. But um, but if you're you know friendly with Fulmer, maybe you can make it happen. Um, <laughs> an elephant in this virtual room is the immense health disparities surrounding our anchor hospital institutions. How might we engage them to step up on this question of racism as a public health crisis in the same way they have so ably stepped up during the pandemic? Um. I would tell you that the first call that I received when we uh, passed this uh, resolution was uh, Dr. Mahalovich. And uh, Dr. Mahalovich said, how can uh, the Cleveland Clinic be of help? And we want to, you know, they, they've been for years, um, you know, they've always been working with these issues of their relationship with the community. Uh, but just the fact that they issued a statement um, the state that they support this and that they want to be a part of this. We're working with uh, Dr. Adam Myers and the uh, Population Health uh, Committee and also Dr. Charles Modlin and that whole group. And the reason that we're working with them is because we're really trying to focus on population health, not just in um, our ward, because I'm a council person that does not just think about the well-being of Ward 6. My concern is for everybody across the whole city. So I'm really working closely with them about how we can really try to, you know, uh, put a model in place to deal with the social determinants of health. And they're working closely with me to help put that together. So we're going to rely on them to help me uh, put that that side together. Councilman, the uh, let me just see here. The um it's just the questions really are um, almost all about the police. Um, but I'm going to I'm going to go to this other one about marijuana. Um, and this is a pretty straightforward question. Why is decriminalization of marijuana a social justice issue? Uh, because when you looked at the data, African-Americans were seven times more likely to uh, receive a charge for marijuana possession than their white counterparts. And uh, when that happened, um, then they get a record. It prevents them from being able to get school support. It, be, it, uh, it prevents them from being able to qualify for certain social services, certain employment. Uh, so had a disparate impact. A lot of times you might have policies or you might have um, you know, actions that a, a system is doing or a department is doing that um, has a disparate impact on a certain group. And in this case, it's African-American community. And uh, Councilman, the, if you can, back, coming back to the police, um, would you speak to specifically changes you'd like to see in how the Cleveland police operate? And is there any way resources can be redirected for healing in the city rather than uh, for prudent? So, well, the, the way this is worded is, is there any way resources could be redirected for healing in the city rather than brutal police? But I think you get the gist of the questioner's, uh, the questioner's um, point. 
Well, yeah, I, I get the point that basically they're saying, why don't you, why do you invest so much money into the police department? Why don't mm -hmm. you put more money to social services, economic development, community development, and those kind of tools? And in this kind of world, you actually have to use a balance um, of, of what you need to do. And you actually have to try to find win-wins. And one of the things that we uh, try to accomplish with the consent decree is to have good policing that will create a safe environment, but that was institutionally and uh, constitutionally correct. A lot of bright minds gave input to that document, internal to City Hall, City Hall as well as external to City Hall. Now it's a matter of just executing and the execution of it. Um, you know, I would look at a lot of things has to happen with the arbitrator. And while everybody is talking about how we have to fix the police department, they don't always talk about the other systems like the arbitrator or they don't talk about the courts. Um, in the case with the gentleman, um, Mr. Chauvin, who killed Mr. Uh, Floyd in Minnesota, a lot of people don't understand the law to understand that when they up the charge from a third degree um, um, you know, homicide to a second degree, it's going to be harder to prove that. And if it's harder to prove that because you have to prove intent and then he winds up getting a manslaughter case because you have to go to the lesser charge and doesn't get hardly any time, then you're going to have people upset again. So sometimes really trying to make sure, you know, that you understand the law and understand what, what is at risk when uh, you're looking at these different systems and policies. Councilman Griffin, there's a, uh, a, an organization called Campaign Zero. Zero that has um, a list of eight reforms that they say cannot wait. And they have a pretty extensive list of, um, of ways in which to, uh, to, in ways in which police reform should be implemented. They're, they have a strong advocacy agenda. Um, many of these sorts of things are things that the city of Cleveland, I think has already, um, has already implemented. Banning chokeholds and strangleholds, requiring de-escalation, warnings before shooting, um, duty to intervene, banning shooting at moving vehicles, uh, establish a sort of use of force continuum. Two that the city uh, has not yet implemented, exhausting all alternatives before shooting and requiring all force to be reported. Um, are those, are, are those uh, agenda items that you'd advocate for? Many of them are already in the consent decree, but, you know, many of them I would like to hear the details and see what many of the details are. I would tell you that, you know, one of the things that I can remember vividly when we were having conversations around the consent decree was the use of force and when do you call it a use of force. And there was a lot of debate around if it was when you unholster your gun or when you, you know, when you have a force multiplier and all these different things that you, that we looked at. So a lot of those issues were looked at and the justice department, I think did a great job under a uh, former attorney general, Steve Dettelbach of really, you know, guiding that conversation. I could remember vividly uh, that the best practices kind of won out of um, how you have to have that de-escalation. I think one other thing that is important when I look at some of these platforms is how do we have mental health professionals with um, a lot of these police officers and embedded in the um, embedded in the uh, police departments as well. When I go to other cities like Boston and other folks, they have some of their social services and uh, mental health services embedded in the police department because police officers um, oftentimes get called to be social workers too. They do. 
Absolutely. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit from the from the police to some of the other areas in which you work. We talked about development planning and sustainability. Uh, you also serve on the finance committee. And so moving away from the public health crisis conversation for a second, um, COVID is going to have a, um, a, an extraordinary impact on the city's finances. And um, what do you think, what are you seeing and what do you think the solutions are? This is not a a 12 month problem, but probably a multi-year problem that you're facing. Well, it's definitely going to have a huge impact. Um, we're not panicking yet. The reason why we're not panicking is because one of the things that I think that um, I have to give uh, Mayor Jackson and Sharon Dumas credit for is that uh, we really worked as a council to pass a budget that was, um, that had a, um, you know, that, uh, that had a rainy day fund that we had some uh, surplus. So we uh, we prepared for a uh, recession. Uh, we didn't know the recession was going to come in the first quarter, but um, you know we prepared for it. Uh, we're taking we're going to wind up taking a huge hit um, probably for the month of April. Those numbers are probably just now coming out. March was just about what we anticipated when we got the last report from uh, Director uh, Dumas, Chief Dumas. Um, but um, I think April and May are going to be um, tough hits. And um, we're going to probably have to cover some of those gaps with, um, you know, probably some of the money that we plan for the uh, for the recession at a later time. Um, but um, we do believe because the biggest employers um, are employers that basically um, are starting to come back to work, like at the hospitals and some of the other locations. And so uh, we should recover, but we are going to have a problem for the next few years. Do you see the solutions for those problems that a reduced workforce? What are you thinking about? Right now, I don't I don't see a reduced workforce. Um, I see that we may have to maybe probably provide maybe less services in a couple of areas or something like that. And I don't think we're at that point yet where we have to reduce some, um, you know, services or lay off people. Uh, but um, it is something that we're going to have to examine at the at the right time. Uh, but right now, it looks like we're in pretty good shape. Councilman Griffin, um, speaking of workforce, though, you also serve on the workforce committee. Um, unemployment levels are at historic highs uh, right now throughout the city of Cleveland and surrounding communities as well. Um, I've spoken to you know folks at various uh, hospitality uh, employers, large hospitality employers, where they've had to lay off as many as 90 percent of their employees to uh, in response to the you know business basically drying up in the hospitality industry. Um, what kinds of plans is the committee discussing to get people back to jobs? And, you know, and if you'll let, allow me just a second here, at the beginning of the crisis, there was, it felt like there was a moment when people were thinking, wow, we've hit pause on the economy. What if when we came back, we could, we could rebuild the economy in ways that were more just, more equitable, um, creating more access to opportunity for more people? Um, in the city of Cleveland, that seems like connecting people to the jobs that are available, connecting people to the training to get into those high-skilled, better-paid jobs. Um, what, what, what's council talking about? What are you talking about at the committee level that you hope to implement? Well, one of the things that I think that um, I want to give credit to my colleagues, Councilman Kerry and Councilman McCormick, is to try to look at how we do innovative and different things. Um, like we voted to look at um, how we can expand patio and parking lot access for restaurants and venues to be able to, um, 
you know, use, you know, have more outdoor dining and other things like that. We have a large service economy. So what we really have to do is try to find innovative ways to jumpstart our service economy. I actually had a Zoom call with all of the uh, with uh, a a large amount of the uh, business owners in Little Italy. And uh, we talked about, you know, the tools that the city's trying to do and and how we're trying to find ways to support small business owners and mid-sized business owners. So we have to try to find ways to attract, uh, you know, people back to the service industry and work with groups like Destination Cleveland. That, and now that people are probably not doing uh, vacations and going down to Disney World or wherever else anybody goes, how do we try to focus on, hey, um, do a state vacation, you know, um, really promote going to the local, uh, the local establishments and, 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 and having different things that we support there. So we got to find a way to support the, uh, you know, small businesses in the city of Cleveland. seems like that's really a place where, um, planning and, uh, and, um, where, where planning and public health and, uh, and economic development all come into play. There are cities, um, nearby here that are, uh, opening streets to pedestrians, which on the other side of the coin is closing them to cars so that you can um, create social distance dining areas where, you know, uh, that are essentially pedestrian areas. Um, And, you know, your neighborhood, the neighborhood you just referenced, Little Italy, and the neighborhood where you live, Larchmere, I mean, these are places that that do that at least once a year. Um, And, you know, where, and we know that it's successful, we know it's doable. Um, is there real? Are there real conversations happening at City Council about making that possible? Uh, creating new zoning ordinances to uh, to allow for for neighborhoods to do that? Yeah, we actually, like I said yesterday, we had a conversation about it. And um, as I said before, Councilman uh, McCormick and Councilman Zone really, because they have a large um, you know base of those kind of restaurants, um, really you know had that discussion and Council passed that. So now we're looking at how we can actually start to implement that because we have to attract people back to these different areas. A lot of folks are, um, you know, we, a lot of folks are not traveling out of town this year. A lot of folks are not going to other places. We have to try to make people uh, rediscover Cleveland. How do they rediscover um, Collinwood? How do they rediscover uh, Fairfax? How do they rediscover all of the different jewels that we have in Cleveland? And I think that that's going to be all of our jobs to become ambassadors to make that uh, your colleague, Council President Kevin Kelly, uh, sent in this question. You briefly mentioned lead poisoning, but can you talk more about the relationship between lead poisoning, infant mortality, and COVID-19, and the racial implications of the health outcomes there, and how this racism is a public health crisis uh, declaration supports efforts there? Well, I mean, when you got you know, four babies, you know, with with African-American women, um, you know, are four times likely to lose their child than than their white counterparts. When you have African-American children that have higher uh, rates of uh, elevated blood level, uh, lead levels, you know, when you have, um, you know, all of these different things that we fall behind in the data and statistics, but, you know, a lot of us, like myself, don't need data or statistics. You know, sometimes when I look at um, a lot of 
this health data, I say, thank God, because I fall into a lot of these different categories uh, that that, uh, you know, that they fit raising, you know, being raised as a young man in the city of Cleveland and also raising a family in the city of Cleveland. Uh, so, um, you know, we really have to uh, look at the data. But at the end of the day, Mark, I mean, end of the day, Dan, I just got to tell you, people really want to touch, see, feel and see. Um, change. They, you know, we could talk about the data and make the case on data as much as we want, but people want to see and feel the better quality of life in the city of Cleveland. And that's what we have to work for. Well, that's a, it gets to the other question uh, that not that came from Kevin Kelly, but from another listener, what does this actually mean for black people? And what does this mean for the systems that uh, you broke up a little bit, but if I heard you correctly, it said, what does this mean for black people? Uh, we are right. trying. To, this is this. What does this mean for black people? It means that we are going to push and that we are going to demand change in every system across the board. Um, this means that we want to make a system that is more equitable for uh, black folks. We want to make we want to shorten the life expectancy uh, disparity between somebody who lives in Woodland Hills, who has almost a 16 to 17 year uh, difference in life expectancy than their counterpart who lives in Lyndhurst. Uh, we want to see the real change. We want to see better housing. And um, it's going to be hard work, but um, I think we're up to it as a city. Councilman Blaine Griffin, uh, next year, 2021, there will be a race for the mayor's office. Um, what kind of leader do you think the city needs in 2021? I think the city is going to need a leader that is visionary. I think that uh, people will follow leadership. I think somebody's going to have to think out of the box. Um, I think that people, are, you have to uh, be uh, a little bit old school, but you also have to be very new school. We have to embrace technology. They have to become a smart city. Uh, it's going to have to be uh, someone who really understands how we can make technology uh, happen. Uh, someone who can bring traded sector jobs that have gone overseas back to our area, to the city of Cleveland. And it's going to have to be somebody who can build um, a, a collaboration and build um, a network of people that all want to work in the same direction. Um, you know, one person is not going to make this city move. Um, so that leader is going to have to be able to motivate all sectors of our city uh, to really make Cleveland a city that we should be. Will you be running? Well, right now it's premature to talk about running. We have a mayor. We have Frank G. Jackson, who is the uh, mayor of the city of Cleveland. And uh, the people, great people of Ward 6 um, elected me to make sure that I get this grass cut, that I make sure that these streets are fixed today, and that uh, I make sure that I let them know the bulk pickup. But let me say this in all seriousness and honesty. Um, I love this city. And boy, how great it would be if, uh, you know, for whoever to have the honor uh, to uh, be the leader of this city in the future. So uh, just to even think about how, uh, you know, to serve the people of the great city of Cleveland, it just uh, gives everybody goosebumps. Well, that's definitely not a no, Councilman. And I appreciate your candor. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, Thank Councilman, we're going to leave it there. Uh, Councilman Blaine Griffin represents Ward 6. And uh, Councilman, we really appreciate your time. Congratulations on getting that legislation passed. I know you haven't had a minute to 
to really enjoy the, the success of that. But I hope you will recognize that it is a big success. I have received you know, emails and text messages from people around the country who are noticing that this has happened. So congratulations to you and your colleagues on city council and to the city. And uh, the city club is here to help with the conversation, with the necessary conversations as we try and figure out what this actually means. So I hope you'll, I hope we'll stay in touch. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, Dan. Okay. I want to thank all of you as well for joining us. Our virtual forums are sponsored by the Cleveland Foundation, George Gund Foundation, KeyBank Nordson, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC, as well as many more generous member sponsors and donors that you can find on our website at cityclub.org slash thank you. You can join them in supporting our work when you make a contribution online or you become a member at cityclub.org. And we're going to continue to present our forums virtually as either here on, on platforms like this or through IdeaStream. You can join us tomorrow at 12.30 p.m. as Mordecai Cargill of Third Space Action Lab and Danielle Sidnor of the Cleveland branch of the NAACP join us to discuss last week's protests and whether we as a city are ready to confront racism. If you have other ideas about topics or speakers we should feature while we're sheltering in place, and figuring out the new reality, please get in touch. We're at cityclub.org. I'm Dan Malthrop. Thank you so much for being a part of this. Stay strong and stay healthy, friends. Our forum is adjourned. All right. <laughs>